You should have, as you came in today, received a set of notes. Um, session two, if you didn't get a set of those, wave your hand. I know, I know, Ellen, the worship team got shorted because I forgot to take them to the back. So make sure these men and women get a copy. As I was getting ready to leave Atlanta, um, one of the last few minutes in the office, they, some of our staff was questioning my sanity of, um, you really, you sure you can't send somebody else? I go, oh, I think we could send lots of people. Dave and I talked about contingency plans. And they're like, you sure you don't want to just stay grounded till you get your hip replacement? It's just two more weeks, be patient. I'm like, no, I love that place. I, I, I'm not allowed to have favorite conference centers because I go to a number of, if I were allowed to, this would be my favorite one. And I don't say that anyplace else, so that's, but I'm not allowed to, so never quote me on that, please, please, please. Um, one guy I work with, I, we work well together, but we're like polar opposites, which is part of the reason I hired him, because um, we're just, we see everything differently, and I desperately need his perspective. But he says, aren't you getting a little old for camp? <laughs> and I went, I'm just getting started. And he's like, but your kids are grown. They're gone. They don't go to family camp anymore. I go, I know, but, but grandkids, are, they're here. They're on the way. You know, this is just kind of the, the law. And so he's like, well, why don't you like just, you don't have to go for a few years. I said, I go for my soul. I go for my soul. You see, God has used camp in a huge way in Ellen's in my life. For her, she came to know Christ at a Billy Graham crusade. Grew up in Charlotte, not far from the Graham family, but went all the way to New York to see her grandma. Grandma took her to Madison Square Garden, and she and her brother got lost on the way to getting saved, and just about everybody else had gone home, and um, there were a couple counselors hanging around by the time they found the front, and um, they were gloriously saved that night, both of them. Then she started going to some Christian camps, and I won't tell you all the details, but one of the decisions she made was to only date not just Christian guys, but guys where it was a major part of their life, and they were going in the same direction. And um, I think that was part of God's way of saving her for me, and we really got to know each other junior year at Wheaton College, and I, I've been back to that camp, and I praise God that they got through her stubborn little middle school, high school mind and um, set her aside for me. That's pretty awesome. For me, um, I went to camp in northern Wisconsin, fifth and sixth grade, and my mom and dad were in trouble. My dad had announced to our family that he no longer loved my mom and um, was going to be moving on, and mom put some pressure on him. He worked for a pretty conservative um, insurance company, and she was going to mess with his career if he did that. And so reluctantly went, all right, I, I was the youngest of three, says, I'll stay till he goes away to college. Um, but it was against that backdrop that I went to camp for the first time. And that, that song that Courtney led us in, How Great Thou Art, it's the first time I ever heard that song in my life was at that camp. And they had it etched into big pieces of wood hanging in this beautiful chapel. And um, I'd never done anything like this before. I snuck in there by myself and just bawled like a baby. And uh, my counselor was a football player. There was a little idol worship going on there in my head, I'm sure. Um, but his parents had broken up, and God came through for him. 
and became the father to the fatherless. And it just gave me tremendous hope. Now, dad ended up staying with mom, not very happily for a lot of years. And I was actually in seminary when dad called one Monday and says, guess what I just did last night? I said, I have no idea. And he says, I got baptized. I go, what? You, uh, come on, catch me up. And he says, I'm, I'm just paying some vows that I made in a foxhole in World War II a long time ago. And he says, God's got all of me now. And I said, what about mom? He goes, she's got all of me too, if she'll have me. Mom used to always say, I'd have divorced your daddy in a heartbeat. I was just too embarrassed for any other woman to see what little progress I'd made in 50-some <laughs> years. So, I, I, I love camp. God does unique things in this setting, does he not? We just hear from him differently when we unplug a little bit and change our routine. Um, in the back, there's a number of those resources I told you about last night. This is the newest course called Chiseled. It's on the life of Simon Peter. It's six sessions, a lot like this. If you like this teaching style, nothing fancy about it. It's kind of meat and potatoes Bible teaching. Great for small groups. If you're a pastor, if you're a leader, we can also give you the PowerPoint. You can teach it live yourself. Um, Albert, the last thing you need is any help from me as a communicator. But I'm going to give you this set. I, I would be honored and I would love to see what you would do with the bones of this but pouring it through your gifts and your personality. That would be, I won't recognize it, but I'll go, throw me a footnote every now and then, yeah. Anybody just join us tonight? We're not here last night? Really? Nobody? That, somebody? Oh, okay. I thought that was my wife's hand for a minute. I'm like, hon, you are here. We, we launched into the book of Ruth last night. It's a, it's a new series by Walk Through the Bible called Refuge, Finding Home in a World of Change. Never has there been the amount of people on the move. Global migration is at its historical high. Some of that is because it's easier to move than it's been at other different times. But a lot of it is because it's just tough to live in a lot of places all over planet Earth right now. And, and there's 250-some million people crossing international borders to get away from the, the pain and suffering where they are. We talked a lot about that, and that, that really is what goes on in the book of Ruth. There's a woman by the name of Naomi. Who's her husband? Okay, it is train day. Okay, now we're back. Okay, Elimelech, and uh, they're married. They have a couple of kids, Malon and Kilion. Anybody name their kids Malon and Kilion? Nah, uh -uh, me neither. Um, but they, they are living in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. It's one of those special places. You know what's going to happen later on, oh, little town of Bethlehem, and we celebrate it at Christmas. But um, a famine hits the land, and it's devastating famine. Elimelech and Naomi, they decide, we're, why stay here and starve? Let's go. We've heard over in Moab, and that's on the, that's on the other side of the Jordan River. It's to the... It's to the east. It's modern-day Jordan. And they're like, we've heard there's food there. Now, isn't that ironic? Rather than in God's covenant community, in the house of bread, Bethlehem, there's no food there. Instead, they make the choice to go. They're trying to save their family from extinction. Now, 
that's a tough place to go because Israel and Moab have been enemies for a long time. They've, there was a, a big conquest under Joshua when they took the land after leaving the exodus under Moses. But there's been skirmishes back and forth for a long time, and this isn't exactly where they, where they want to go. And even today, so many, so many immigrants are not choosing ideal situations. They're choosing the best of the available options, even if that option pretty much stinks. And so they, they head there, and they're all right for a while. In fact, both Malon and Kilion meet nice little Moab girls. And they get married, and they're there for a while, uh, but they've been there at least a decade. And, and then Elimelech dies, and both her sons die. So now she's a single mom with two kids, but then the boys die. Now she's just got two daughters-in-law. How would you like to lose your sons and be stuck with your daughters-in-law? Some of you have experienced that. She does it twice. And she's a widow. Eventually she hears there's, there's bread again back home. Let's go home. She tells the girls, girls, you stay here. This is your homeland. Moab is home for you. I'm going to go home. And that, but initially they both want to go with her. She talks Orpah into staying and Ruth goes, no way. I'm going with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Your future will be my future. I'm going with you. Stop trying to change my mind. And Naomi's like, fine. And it's very interesting for starters that this book is called Ruth. Because we would think logically it would be called Naomi because she's, she's from the Jewish nation. She's from God's covenant people. But it's named after Ruth, this woman from Moab. Well, they get home, and she's not the same as when she left. She's like, don't call me pleasant. I need a new name. Call me bitter. Because God has dealt very, very, very painfully with me. She's struggling. She is back home. She's geographically back in Bethlehem. But emotionally, she's still a long ways from home. We have any realtors here? Anybody work in real estate in any? Okay. You all know, and we've all heard it, the three most important things are what? Location, location, location. Absolutely true. That's not necessarily true in this passage when it comes to where is home. It's relationships, relationships, relationships. Because she's back in the location that used to be home, but it doesn't feel like home. I grew up in normal Illinois. Anybody ever been there? Seriously. Good. Not a lot. Normal Illinois. That's true. On Smith Drive. My wife's like, why didn't they name you John Doe? You know, just go for total generic living. And, and it is true that a man from our town married a woman from another little town down the road. The headline in the paper said, normal man marries oblong woman. That, that actually has happened twice in history. Everybody thought it was hilarious, except the bride and her mom were not real pleased. The Daily Panagraph ran with it, baby. Went back there. I don't know, not even a year ago, a number of months ago. It was so good to go home, I thought. The trouble is, my brother now lives in Oregon with his family. My sister died on my 50th birthday from complications from the adult form of muscular dystrophy. So she's gone. 
My mom died 15 years ago, just a day or so ago. And my dad died a few years ago. I did those funerals. It's, Albert, it is not the pits when you're like the family pastor. You just want to grieve sometimes, but you've got to be on duty and hold it together till later. And home wasn't home anymore, and I went by our church, and there's still some wonderful friends there, but all my parents' friends, they've all gone to glory. And there's a new pastor there, and I started to stop in and see him, and I should have done it. I'll do it next time. But he's a new pastor, and we have no history. And I went by the two houses, three houses that we had lived in while we lived there, and, and they've, like, moved bushes and stuff. They didn't clear that with me. My swing set is not in the back where it was supposed to be. Home is a lot more than geography, isn't it? Look at verse 1. Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. Name Boaz means mighty man. He evidently is a good guy, good strong character. Boaz was a close relative and a man of good character. There's your fill in the blank. At first reading, this seems like an irrelevant tangent. Who cares about her family tree when the part of her family tree she cares about the most has been cut down prematurely? But the writer is foreshadowing that there is indeed hope for Naomi. She doesn't believe this. Perhaps God has not forgotten her after all. The writer just dangles this bit of information and then walks away from it. Oh, he'll develop it later. We'll even start that tonight. But for right now, he just kind of drops that there. We're like, okay, good to know. Hey, great. Verse 2, And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi. Notice how she's identified. Ruth, like in parentheses, the Moabitess. In fact, eight times in this book, she's either called the Moabitess or Ruth from Moab. And it's almost said like that, Ruth, not from around here. Ruth, don't ask her for her papers. She's probably not documented. I mean, she's Moabites coming to Israel. That would be a very, very, very strange thing. This is how she is identified. This is how she is labeled. This is her identity. And Ruth, the Moabitess, when we moved to Atlanta from Illinois, Ellen grew up in Charlotte, so she was like, oh, great, we've been restored to the South just in time to raise proper Southern children. And I'm like, where in the world are we? First time I taught a walk through the Old Testament, I talked about the nation dividing between the North and the South, Israel, Judah. I go, it's just like our Civil War. I'd use that illustration for years. Doesn't work in Augusta, Georgia. A man says, young man, there was nothing civil about that conflict. And a woman says, I assume you were referring to the war of northern aggression. I'm like, Toto, we are not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> Ellen's grandpa moved down to the south from New York, and he was offered grits. Well, for starters, they're not called grits. They're called greets. Like Phil is now feel. I got 80s in my name now just for moving to the south. 
It's a weird place. Wherever two or three have gathered together, there's a Waffle House in our midst. It's, <laughs> it's just... Her grandpa has offered grits, and he goes, I don't know if I like those or not. Please bring me just one grit. Well, that, di that didn't go well. Not from these parts, are you, sir? Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. Notice the word favor in there. Let me pick up grain in anybody's fields where I find favor. That Hebrew word then in the Hebrew version of the New Testament is the same word as our word for grace. Isn't that cool? So it's not just favor in the sense of somebody may take a liking to me. In the South, they say, they may take a shine to you. No, this, this is deeper than that. This is finding grace in someone's eyes, getting something that you don't deserve. Naomi says, go ahead, my daughter. Ruth takes the initiative in providing for herself and Naomi. This is, by the way, very unusual for a woman to take that kind of initiative in that culture. It's even more unusual, countercultural, for a, a foreigner. And I don't like that label much. There was a hilarious thing happened. I do not have time for this story, but I cannot leave it in the holster. Um, Ted Turner, Atlanta Braves have a wonderful history. He's an interesting fellow, I'm told. I've never met him personally. And, and he came out with an edict a number of years ago of stop calling foreign ballplayers foreign ballplayers. They are international ballplayers. Not a bad thing to say, honestly. Pretty good thing. There was one game when the announcers were announcing, and all of a sudden, nobody understood it at the time, but they just like lost it and got the giggles. Like for about half an inning. And what finally turned out is they had got this edict from Ted, and there were fines involved if you slipped and called them foreign ball players, and so they're very paranoid about it. And one of the Braves pitchers was throwing, and, and somebody protested. He was suspected of, you know, putting something on the ball. And so they go, all right, here comes the manager. Oh, man, we're going to talk now. There goes the umpire out. Yes, sir. He's, he's checking the pitcher's hands for an international substance. <laughs> And, and none of us watching had any idea what was going on. They could not get their act together for about half an inning. Ruth identifies herself, not just as a Moabitess, but she calls herself a foreigner. We'll see later on. Highly unusual. Will God use a foreigner to provide for one of his daughters, Naomi, that daughter who believes he's forgotten her. Now, they didn't have the story of the Good Samaritan yet. That comes in the New Testament. God is full of surprises. He's faithful, but he's not predictable. And just the time you think you got him figured out, he's going to mess with your categories in the biggest of ways possible. Ruth takes initiative in providing for herself and Naomi. She's going gleaning what, what, what is gleaning? Leviticus 19 fills us in on the background. It's, it's to landowners, and the instruction in the law says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field 
or gather the gleanings of your harvest. In other words, when wheat or barley or whatever it is, when it's first cut down and then when it's picked up and put in sheaves, it's okay to miss some. Don't be one of those landowners who sends your people back through the, through the acreage a second, a third time. Leave a little there. That's how the poor will make it, by the generosity of those who have more. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. A couple pictures of gleaning that we have. This practice still goes on today. It still goes on in farmland. Still certainly goes on in the Middle East. Ellen and I drove to Moss Landing today, went to Phil's Fish Market. Loved it, loved it, loved it. See so many workers out in the fields, it appeared to be strawberries they were picking, backs bent at right angles. Hard work, hard work. Those of us who live in cities, there's been a good trend recently that's a healthy trend. Local food banks have developed partnerships with grocery stores, in some cases big grocery chains. You know, it wasn't that long ago a grocer would rather take the expired food and put it in dumpsters and sometimes with locks or people watching it because if people take it for free, then they won't buy. And so much good food went to waste for so long. There's been a softening of the heart that's making the food banks be able to help so many more people than they used to be. Verse 3, so Ruth went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, there's several phrases like this in here, like, as it turned out, could have been translated, it just so happened. As it turned out, she found herself. She didn't walk there. She found her. No, she walked there. But just coincidentally enough, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz. Oh, that's that guy whose name got dropped in verse 1. He's going to figure into the story. Who was from the clan of Elimelech? Just then, what do you know? What, what, what coincidental timing? Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord is with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. God brings Boaz and Ruth together. I think one of the things we'll get to do in heaven, I don't know this for sure, I've never been there. But I think one of the things we'll get to do, like, like we liked this whole Ancestry.com thing. It's pretty cool, your physical ancestry. I think in heaven we're going to get to trace our spiritual ancestry. Somebody led so-and-so to Christ and somebody, and that grandma who prayed for you and is still praying for you and, and paid half your way to this week at Mount Hermon because she's still worried about you. That grandma, and we're going to see what really went on in the heavenlies. I don't know that for sure. But eternity is a long time. we got time to do some of that stuff, you know. It's not just, you know, report to your cloud at 0900, halo polishing at 930, and then we'll have choir. Yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah. There, there's work in heaven. It's productive work. It's fun work. 
It's fulfilling. Well, so sometimes God does things and we don't even notice him doing them. I think in heaven, the curtain's going to be lifted up and we'll go, really, that, that meeting? That, that wasn't coincidence? Sometimes a coincidence is really a miracle where God chooses to remain anonymous. And every now and then he'll show us a little bit, a little lifting of the edge of the curtain. But in eternity, when we see fully, I think we'll just step back and go, oh, man. God, you are the ultimate multitasker. Boaz asked the foreman of the harvesters, verse 5, whose young woman is that? Don't be offended if you are a modern woman by that. It's not an issue of ownership. That's the way their culture viewed it. And that's why they were so vulnerable now as, as single women, especially Ruth in a foreign land. The foreman replied, she is what? Top answer on the board, survey says, bing! That's right, 89 people out of 100 identified her as the Moabitess. This is the label she carries. Who came back from Moab with Naomi? The foreman just kind of casually threw that detail in. She said, please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went out into the field and was, has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Ruth is identified as a Moabite. That's her identity. That's all most people see. Ruth, who migrated here. They may or may not know her linkage with Naomi, but Ruth, she's a Moabite. She's a foreigner. This overseer, he's unusual because he's able to look past the label, and he sees her character. He describes her as first polite. She says, please. She's very gracious. She's not demanding. She doesn't go, hey, according to your law, you got to let me do this. Here's the verse right here, bucko. She's very polite. And she is hardworking. She's worked since this morning. She, she just took one break. She's diligent. My observation has been that when we look at people as categories, it's very easy to just stop with the label. But when a relationship is formed with an individual, it's like, whoa. I just, man. And that's when the compassion comes. That's when the connection comes. It's like I could see myself in that same set of circumstances making the same decision you have. It's called empathy. You wouldn't expect to see it from a foreman out in a field who's just trying to get the crop in. Boaz said to Ruth, verse 8, my daughter, that's a term of affection. It's a family term. Listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. Boaz assures Ruth of his provision but also his protection. 
Nobody's going to mess with me, with you. I've instructed my crew there not to touch you. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. This isn't a thanks. This is a full bow. She exclaimed, why have I found such what? Grace. Favor. In your eyes that you notice me a what? Foreigner. I mean, the law that was to be kept, the rules in Leviticus, that was within the covenant family, the nation of Israel, for the most part. You didn't have to go beyond that. Well, you, you could. That was good if you did. But he's giving her this preferential treatment, and she's surprised by his grace and compassion. Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law, since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. Boaz answers her question, why are you showing me grace? Because I've heard about you. I've heard about you. This is the motivation behind his actions. Remember, Bethlehem is a small town, maybe a couple, a couple thousand, not big. The town where our first church was, 850 people, I told you that. Nobody used turn lights. You'd get to them, there were no stoplights. A couple stop signs, you go, oh, you're late to pick up Jessica at soccer practice, go ahead of me. Nobody used turn lights. You only had to know three digits of phone numbers because everybody else's were the same up until the last three digits. You would often call a wrong number and you'd talk 30 minutes anyway. I was a card-carrying, ambulance-chasing pastor. If, if the sirens went off, I knew there was about a one out of six chance it was somebody in our church, and so I'd just go. I, lo I loved it anyway. That was my excuse. Still do it some in Atlanta. I'm not even a pastor, but that's how I explained it to Ellen at the time. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He paints a beautiful picture with his words. It's like an eagle protecting her young. Boaz knows all about Ruth and he blesses her. Boaz understands that God's wings are wide enough for even a foreigner. There were many, many people in the covenant community that said, he is our God. He is the, he is the God of Israel. Like we have the, the copyright or the patent on him. The one true God cares about every people group on the planet. Always has. You read the book of Revelation... Heaven is going to be one big international party. I told you Walk Through the Bible has ministry in 140 or so countries. It is so fun when we get our, our global leaders together. Uh, you got, I should have mentioned this earlier, pathways that you got. Where, where's my group who's here from Kenya? There, there's a number of Look, we printed this just for you. It, it, it's all about young people. Yeah. Combating corruption in Kenya, it's about at-risk girls. It's not that different from this story. But it's so fun when we get our leaders together. And, and you know, the Koreans, are, they're like, 
Better learn Korean now. It is language of heaven. You will be speaking it for eternity. <laughs> Time to get started, Phil. You don't learn quickly. It's like, now where did they get that? I don't know. And that's disputed by other people. Our, our African leaders are like, I'll tell you what. You Koreans are not in charge of worship for eternity. We will lead the worship. <laughs> the Koreans like, okay, but we will handle logistics because it's important that things be run efficiently. And I know these are stereotypes and you're not allowed to do that now and that's offensive, but the stereotypes come from someplace. And the Filipinos, we just go, we already know, y'all are in charge of hospitality. Because they are the warmest people on earth. There's about more Filipinos living away from the Philippines than in the Philippines. And wherever they go, they are welcomed. Some of the most effective missionaries on planet earth. It's going to take all nations to accurately reflect the full character of God. So... Well, Albert, when I hear about your church being multi, I'm coming for a visit. I'm going to show up. When I was coming up in ministry, the whole church growth movement was starting. And you know what they taught us? None of this is in your notes. Sorry. But they taught us, you want your church to grow fast. You know what you need? You need a homogenous unit. You know what that means? Everybody's got the same skin color. Everybody's at basic, same socioeconomic level. You probably would be convenient if you all vote the same way in the, in the election. Your kids go to the same schools, and then your church will grow because you've got so much in common. I don't want to go to a church like that. Church we go to in Atlanta is not like that. It's about a third black. It's um, maybe a sixth Asian, a sixth Hispanic, plus we have a separate... Spanish congregation that meets in our building and there's a bunch of us boring white people walking around learning finally how to worship way too late in life. It's glorious. I want to go to a place where all the things that are different between us that ought to divide us fall into insignificance compared to the only thing that really matters which is our shared faith in Jesus Christ. That's where I want to worship. It is a preview of heaven. And may I say to you, Mount Hermon is headed the right direction in that. It's changed over the years. We first came here in 06. It's glorious. It's glorious. All right, that was extra credit. That will not be on the final exam. Boaz understands God's wings are wide enough to protect a foreigner too. Verse 13, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, Ruth said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the same standing as one of your servant girls. Ruth is comforted by Boaz's kindness. It wasn't just him being polite. It's not the southern hospitality that we have learned where it's usually followed by, bless your heart. <laughs> they don't let me preach in the South. It's good to come here. Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. 
As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. That's one thing you never did as a gleaner. You waited until the sheaves were cut down, and then you kept people away from those. They were to go find the leftovers. Like, even if she's taken from the choicest section, you leave her alone. Boaz does so much more than the law requires. Rather, now he's on a roll. Pull out some stocks for her from among the bundles. Leave them for her to pick up. Oops, I dropped some. And don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley, and she gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. And it's like, say amen. It's an ephah. Isn't that, doesn't that just bless your soul to know it's an ephah? <laughs> well, that's about 23 liters or quarts. That's almost six gallons. That's a pretty good day's work. That's not sustenance farming to get you through that day. You can go a while on six gallons worth. She carried it back to town. I'll bet that was heavy and hard work. And her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. By offering extravagant generosity, Boaz does more than the law requires. Second mile service our son, who just got his own Chick-fil-A about a year ago, that's just drilled into them. You go the extra mile. If it's pouring outside, put people out in the drive through with their little iPads to take the orders so the line moves faster. Second mile service. Her mother-in-law asked her, um, where did you glean today? <laughs> where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law, about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. Wasn't any big deal to her. He's an amazing guy. His name happens to be Boaz. Suddenly, everything starts to make sense. Naomi gets excited. She says, the Lord bless him, she said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. He's now become central to the story. He's not a peripheral bit player anymore. Of all the fields Ruth could have picked, she just happened, and he just happened along because it was a divine appointment arranged by God himself. God is starting to rekindle the faith of Naomi. What's a kinsman redeemer? This is worth its own message. Deuteronomy 25, 5 says, now don't get freaked out by this if you're here with extended family, okay? We're not under the law and you don't have to do this anymore. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. I could show you pictures of our family, and Ellen would go, yep, glad that got written out in New Testament times. <laughs> a kinsman redeemer was bound by the law to assist a relative in order to carry on the family name. Significant that the family primarily, more than any other organization, including the government, 
It, it is the family that provided for hurting people. It's the first line of defense. And praise God for the government programs we have that are often a safety net. But even today, it's the family that's the first source of provision. Then Ruth, the Moabitess, in case you forgot, because it hasn't been spoken for two or three verses here, Ruth, the Moabitess, said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls because in someone else's field you might be harmed. Again, we see the vulnerability of women. It's still the case today. This is before Me Too, and sure, there's been some excesses perhaps, but it's a movement that is so desperately needed because our sisters and our mothers and our daughters are still vulnerable. And if you think it's bad here, travel around the world with me sometimes. What a sad commentary on the spiritual values of God's own people during the dark time of the judges. It's easy to see why Boaz was so well respected for his integrity, his generosity. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. You know, every chapter ends like this in the whole book. They made it back home, but now what? That's where one ends. This one ends, wow, that's pretty awesome. Harvest just ended, now what? The writer of this book, sure, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but, but a gifted storyteller, loves cliffhangers. What will happen now that the harvest is over? The story of Ruth teaches more than the customs of the culture. It reveals the heart of God. This, by the way, is how we should read all the Bible. This is why Albert's message lit us up yesterday morning, even though many of us have heard and some of us have even taught the story of the feeding of the 5,000 because we got into the story. We stepped into it. We experienced it ourselves. And we, and we, had, we had brand new insights as a result of that. That's how we ought to approach the scriptures. You ask most, even Christians, why do we have the Bible? Number one answer, to tell us what happened back then. Not true. To reveal God's heart, his character to us. He provides for people, especially those who need it most. Therefore, he is worthy of our trust. You know, when we read this, especially if you are not a first or second generation American, it's, it's sometimes hard to imagine this, but it, it's, Scripture does something unique in the New Testament. It reminds us that we too are foreigners. We're aliens. We're not really living in our home. Look what Ephesians says. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen on train day? Through Christ's sacrifice, our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, plays this role. 
we can come home as members of God's family. Welcome home. Welcome home. He's redeemed us. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. And now that we've been grafted into this family, our calling is to guide others into the same relationship. I remember years ago hearing the quote, evangelism, because evangelism freaked me out. I'm not one of those speakers like often come to Mount Hermon who led, you know, four passengers, two flight attendants, and the co-pilot to Christ on the way here. I'm a, pretty, I'm a pretty lousy evangelist. I'm getting bolder than I used to be, but it's, it's, it's not my dominant gift, but I think he's called us all to it, but I struggle with it like a lot of you do. This helped me. Evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. It's not our persuasive arguments. It's the fact that this is what he did for me. Luke in the book of Acts says, you will be, Jesus really talking, you will be my witnesses. That's all. Promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so I hope you got it, that's it. Now you can share your faith. Well, if it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find food, maybe it's also one refugee telling another refugee where to find home. Maybe it's one orphan telling another orphan where to find family. Book of Ruth has never been more relevant than it is right now. And if you're Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth, whatever her name was, Naomi, <laughs> and, and, and your trust in God has wavered, then that's why you're here this week. If you're Ruth and you're kind of going, I don't even really know if I belong here or not. I'm one of the military families that came, and I don't do this God thing on a regular basis, and I'm just trying to get through the week and not embarrass myself or break any rules because I don't even know what the Christian rules are. Will you please chill? Welcome home. God brought you here just as surely as he brought Ruth and Boaz together. And if you're Boaz, be you man or woman, realize to look beyond the labels and reach out to somebody who needs some help, whether they're from your own culture and comfort zone or someplace far away. That is our calling. Because we too are refugees. If you're a believer, a Christ follower, we've already found home. Now we get to bring other people along with us. Father, thank you. Thank you for this story. It's, it's so simple that it can be shared with the youngest kids here at Mount Hermon. But Lord, it is so profound that we could study it every day until we go to heaven. And we could still new, learn new things about you and about us. Father, whichever character we identify most with in this story, there's a growth path. There's a curve. There's a story arc. And I pray that we will be swept up into the arc of this story and not just read it to learn what happened back then, but to more clearly understand what it is you want to build in each of us. That kind of special relationship.
Because you are our kinsman redeemer. You are the eagle whose wings are broad enough to cover every single one of us, regardless of what we've done, regardless of what we've come from. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.